Hi, I'm just going to read this quick introduction. Is that okay? Absolutely. All right. Sure. So for, for those of you um, like me who maybe is the first time being here with Pastor Greg, that's okay. I just wanted to read this quick uh, introduction. So Greg is a friend of Pastor Chuck's, and he's uh, having this, uh, recent. Oh, I guess I still need my glasses. <laughs> having spent time in seminary together, Greg has been in ministry for 20 years serving in roles as church planner, uh, teaching pastor, and associate pastor. Currently, Greg is the spiritual life director at Valley Christian High School, where he's been since 2008, 10 years. He also serves as a faculty chair uh, for the Bible department and teaches various courses in theology, world religion, and Christian living. Uh, Greg is also an adjunct professor for the Arizona Christian University and holds degrees from ASU, Phoenix Seminary, and Talbot School of Theology. He and his wife Jennifer live in Gilbert and are depending on God every day as they try their best to trust to raise five children and one dog. Correct. Please welcome Greg as he seeks to serve our God today by teaching us God's word today. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Good morning. Um, go ahead and take your Bibles out, turn to James chapter two. Uh, the Bibles in front of you will be, I believe, page 699. Uh, we're wrapping up our four-week series today, and so this is my last week with you, and, and I just want to declare thank you. Uh, thank you to me, my family, for reaching out to us, for being hospitable and gracious. Uh, you have something wonderful and beautiful going on here, and it was a privilege for us for the past four weeks to spend time with you, so I thank you for that. Um, as we look into James chapter 2, again, we're issuing, uh, taking on this issue of, God, what does it mean for me to soar in you? What does it mean for me to walk close with you? And for the past three weeks, we've tried to dialogue about this issue of, God, what does it look like, I believe, in this beautiful prayer we just heard, for me to be set apart, for me to be holy, for me to be sanctified? And I think throughout the scriptures, God reminds each of us that if you've become a believer in Jesus, that that's just the beginning of this wonderful relationship that God has for you. And it culminates in heaven, but until then, the kind of dash between the time you became a believer till the time either Jesus returns or you die is called sanctification. And that's the, the, the relationship that we have with Jesus to work through all of the things we learn in his word. And so we started in week one with just acknowledging that we are blessed by God. And we listed off a number of blessings that he gave to you when you became a believer. And then the second week we looked at how to know him, and that's through his word. So we want to meditate with joy in his word. And then last week we looked at, yeah, but God, difficult times arise as believers. Uh, persecution from outside and then natural just events because of the world we live in cause us to question, are all of these blessings really real? And so we acknowledge that to trust God, we have to be honest with him. And so we, we dialogued about that out of Psalm 13. And this morning, I want to continue this area of trust, but rather than go vertical by way of God, how does it look between me and you? I want us to ask God, how does it look between me and somebody else? God, can I trust you when I have to deal with somebody else? Um, when is the last time you had to trust God when dealing with another person? Not with him, but with somebody else? That's kind of the question on the table this morning. Recently, I took my son on a, on a, on a ride. 
Um, this ride stands 900 feet off the ground. It sits on top of a hotel building. And this mechanical arm that you sit in swings you out over the building with no safety net. And then the, then, the, then, then the hand starts rotating, and you're in one of these seats. And the seats actually then go forward and kind of face you toward the ground. And it just spins over and over and over again. And as my son and I were on this ride, and it took, believe me, several minutes for him to convince me to go on this ride. A true story, I literally leaned over and I shouted out to him as we're spinning 900 feet over the street with no safety net. I shouted out to him, isn't it amazing that here we are on this ride and we so easily put our trust in complete strangers who built this ride <laughs> and yet how difficult it is to trust God as we spun around and made our way safely back to the, the, the top of the building. You're five weeks away, in my calculations, four or five weeks away, gang, from something pretty enormous. You're four or five weeks away from launching, moving into two services. And, and I'm incredibly excited for you because with that comes an incredible moment in the life of this church in which you'll be able to look back and demonstrate to those who come years from now as to how you prepared for that moment. You'll be able to look back and show people how you trusted God with this incredible opportunity. And I know and you know that on the front end of an opportunity comes this great moment where we either put our trust in God or we put our trust in our own wisdom. And I believe from talking with Chuck and with Tad and others that you are putting your trust in God. And so when you open your doors in a few weeks for another service, here's what I'm guessing you're anticipating. More people will come. That would be my guess. And with more people will come different people. And with more people and different people come challenges. And so I want us to consider as we kind of wrap up this series in Soaring today, how can I promote God with a whole bunch of people coming to this church? And what's amazing to me about the good news and, and the gospel and the word of God is James in chapter 2 gives us some great insight. He invites us into a first century church and he says, come sit in the pew of a first century church and look at what happens, because what happens then isn't radically different than what's happening now, in my opinion. In the first kind of point I guess I want to make this morning is simply this. I believe that what James is telling us, and as we're going to see this morning, is that the gathering of saints is really open to anyone. The gathering of saints is open to anyone. Look at verses 1 through 4 of James chapter 2. James says this, he says, my brethren, and, I, and again, I've said this week after week, and I apologize, but I've had this Bible for over 30 years. It's New American Standard. Amer ESV is on the board over here. Your Bibles are ESV. They're brother and sister. They're not too radically different, but you may hear a few different words. He says this in James chapter 2. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord with an attitude of personal favoritism. Uh, that alone, right? We could just meditate on that for, for quite some time. But, but he says this, For if a man comes into your assembly, into your church service, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, 
And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And have you not become judges with evil motives? See, the gathering of saints, gang, is open to everyone. And I honestly believe that one of the largest segments of our society that is often, and maybe not uh, overtly, but certainly ignored, even by the church, are the disenfranchised. Are those who just don't have a voice. And God looks at us and he says, um, you need to have your doors open to everyone. In the U.S., uh, you may or may not be aware of this, but clearly we have uh, you know, a disenfranchised or homelessness situation. Over 700,000 people a night in our country are homeless. Right here in Arizona, um, not to be statistic heavy, but just to kind of paint the picture, did you know that 82,000 uh, people receive emergency food boxes every week? Right here in Arizona, 14,000 experience homelessness every day. And most of that is in the Phoenix area. 30% of those 14,000 are children and teens. And of those 30%, 43% are under the age of six. Um, that will certainly gang, paint, a, paint a future for a child when they experience homelessness at that age. 40%, and I find this interesting, and I want to share this, I guess, because of, I, I believe, at least my perception, and this may help, 40% of the adult homeless population has an addiction disorder. 40%. But again, couldn't we look at that statistic just the other way around? Which means that close to 60% what? Don't. So, so what, Greg? So, so that means when I come off the freeway and someone's holding a sign, I have a 6 in 10 chance, if they're an adult, that they don't have an addiction disorder. But gang, honestly, how many times do we roll off the freeway and see someone with a sign and immediately our mind goes to drug dealer. If I give you money, you're going to buy beer or alcohol or drugs or whatever. How many times do we do that? And, and you know what? Statistically, you've got a 40% chance of being right. Okay. I just think it could be argued fairly well. You have a 60% chance of being wrong. So, so are, is that what you're gambling on? Is that my hunch is they're going to abuse whatever I give them? Okay. Um, I'm just suggesting this, gang. Uh, be right on your hunch. And I just don't know. I've been doing this a long time, folks. I don't know how to prove that. Unless I see someone abusing drugs or alcohol right in front of me, I don't know how to prove that. So if, that, if that's my claim, I need to just be right on that. I just don't know how. And here's one again. Over 20% of the homeless in Arizona are veterans. 20%, guys. And that should be zero. Uh, that's my opinion. That should be zero. You serve our country. We need to take care of you. I mean, that's just, I don't know how else to deal with that. And so, so we see here in the book of James that a man walks in and we give them Give him favoritism. Now, let's just ask the question, why do we do that? When you open your doors in five weeks for another service and you see someone roll up in a Bentley and they roll in, is it tempting to say, come sit here? 
And is it tempting for Pastor Chuck or Pastor Tad or anyone here in the congregation to say, hey, can we get your info? And would it be tempting to say, hey, when can we do lunch? Of course it's tempting. Why? Because, gang, this is brick and mortar. And this costs money. And when someone rolls in with money, I think it's natural for us to go to the point of, you can help us. And I'm not so sure that's wrong, to be honest with you. We, that's how businesses succeed. That's, can I be honest? That's how nonprofits succeed. Somebody's got to pay the bills, guys. And so if someone rolls up with money, I think it's a natural thing for us to say, hey, you could help us here. If we do a building fund, if we try to raise money, you could satisfy the need we have. That's not wrong. And don't we all know plenty of wealthy people that would like to help? That could be one of them. Great, go for it. What James is saying is this. Don't do it at the expense of somebody else. That's all he's saying. If somebody else rolls in, and they roll in on their broken down 10-speed Huffy bicycle, and they don't have two nickels to rub together, do not tell them to sit in the back. Don't show them that you don't care. That's what James is saying. He's saying, treat the person on the bicycle and the person on the Bentley the exact same way. And can I just tell you, out of 20 years of ministry, that is a tough challenge. That is very, very difficult. But we have that proclamation. So when you open your doors in five weeks and you stand there as a volunteer and you greet people, James is encouraging you, put a joyful smile on when somebody wealthy walks in, when somebody that you don't um, get along with walks in, when someone that you may have a particular bent towards a gender or a race, or he's saying whomever walks in your door, you greet them the same way. And that is with a joyful smile, including the disenfranchised. Number two, here's something that may or may not be of interest. God has an incredible heart for the disenfranchised. Look at um, James chapter 2 and look at verse 5. James says this, he says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Guys, if there's ever a reason to welcome everyone, specifically the disenfranchised, it could be just verse 5. Why, why am I doing this? Why, when someone walks through these doors and, and just from the outset, it doesn't look like they have much to offer, why do I reach out to them and welcome them with open arms? Because that's what God would do. God loves poor people. He loves them. How do I know that? You can go all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, you don't need to turn there. Uh, but in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7, God says this, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns with your land that the Lord God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. God makes it very clear. And, and what's interesting about Deuteronomy 15, gang, is what God is setting up is this. That could be you one day. That's what he's simply saying. Don't ever get satisfied with what you have and comfortable because we all know what it's like to not have that. And, by, and, and all of a sudden, when things were going well and comfortable, and then I get, we get downsized, or I lose my job, or something happens, medical emergency, and I'm out of money, God's saying to the body here, 
That could be you one day, and as much as you give, that's what community is all about. You'll get back. In Acts chapter 2, we, say this, we see the same thing, don't we? The beginning of the church was, hey, sell what you have, put it all in the middle. Those who have a need, come get it. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's, that would be managerial kind of com complex right now. You get the idea, though, that we are all one. And if I have two and you need one, here's one. That starts all the way back in Deuteronomy 15. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, if you're taking notes. When you reap the harvest of your land, listen to this. You shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. That is such a beautiful and practical way to demonstrate Christ to people. When I have this unbelievable potential to make money, I only, I only plow up to a certain point and then I leave the rest. I win, they win, everyone wins. I just wonder in our society today, is that a difficult challenge for me and you? How do we value, how do we view our, our, our money? How do we view our possessions? Are we clinging on a little too tightly? Maybe. And God says in Leviticus, please don't do that. He says in Isaiah 58, verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Listen to this, and gang. I, and to bring the homeless and poor, guess where? Into where? Where would you guess? One of my options. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless and poor into blank? You fill in the blank. What's your guess? House. It, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless and poor into the church? He didn't say that. Wouldn't that be convenient and comfortable? Uh, do you need a ride? Yeah, where are we going? I'm going to drop you off at Church on Mill. It's 8 o'clock at night. I don't think anyone's there. That's okay. They'll take care of you. That's not what he says. He says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless and poor into your house? When you see the naked, cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Figurative or literal? Well, Greg, certainly, he, Isaiah is not really saying to bring the poor and homeless into my own home, is he? I, is he? Here's what, here's, guys, I'm on the back half, as many of us are, the back half of the glory years, right? We're looking kind of, we're looking, you know, at what I've done in life, not what I'm going to do. I just know this about heaven. And Leanne's death, you know, brought this as clear as it could be seven years ago. Um, there are certain things you and I will never have to do in heaven. Do you realize that? We'll never have to do them in heaven. Can you, can we name them? Do you, what, what are some things you will never have to do in heaven? Sin, evangelize. evangelize. Wait a minute, Wait, hang on. You will never have to go to someone and say, do you know Jesus Christ? I mean, do you realize that? Is that kind of, you never have to knock on someone's door and say, hey, we're here from the church on mill. We're here to share Jesus. You know, you never have to do that. People would look at you funny in heaven if you did that. Ever. You never have to evangelize in heaven. Guess what you never else have to do? You never have to minister to the poor in heaven, ever, ever. Which means this, guys, 
the only time to do things like evangelism or minister to the disenfranchised and welcome them in here and into your homes is where? This side of heaven. And here's the gamble. If you're not doing it, here's the gamble. What, how do you know when that clock rotating downward above your head is going to hit zero? How do you know that? So if you're not doing it, here's, here's, here's my wisdom is you're, you're, you're leveraging that God's going to give you another day. Do you recall a parable in the New Testament where Jesus talks about this guy who owned a barn? And he made a lot of money, so what did he do? Built another one. And he stored it all up. And you know what he said to himself? I'm going to eat, drink, and what? Be merry because I've got all this stuff. It's the, one of the most chilling moments, I think, in Jesus' uh, uh, proclamation of the word when he says, you fool, don't you know that tonight, to paraphrase, tonight you're going home? H how do we know if tomorrow is a guarantee? So one of the things we have the opportunity to do this side of heaven is to reach out to those who don't have enough. Now, let's just pause for a moment because this is what I think the pushback is always. There's a reason why that person is the way they are, Greg. True. Comma. So what? I mean, I, I just, I, I've heard, listen, I, I've, I've talked to many people about this issue. I've, I've heard my students and other people tell me that there's a reason why people are the way they are. And if I help them, then I'm enabling them. That is wholly untrue. Rather, I'm going to help them. Why? Because God has a heart for the disenfranchised. Which means when we open our doors for two services and we see some people in here that don't look like us or feel like us or talk like us, or we will welcome them with open arms. Here's where it gets tricky, though. Go back to James. Oh, this is where it gets messy. Verse 6, James verse 6. Uh, verse 6, 7, and 8. Um, the royal law, point number 3, God has a heart for the disenfranchised. Number 3, the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. James chapter 2, verse 6, James says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? I love that because James is making a statement here that's a real practical statement, which is this. We often fear people who don't look like we do or talk like we do or act like we do, and the disenfranchised and homeless come to mind immediately because visibly that's, that's the, the, the out, the, the, what, they, what comes across when you see someone that's homeless. And so you immediately think there's, there's a difference between us. And James says, don't you know that when you invite someone into your church or into your home and you sit them down and they don't have as much as you do, and then you invite someone into your home or church and they have triple, 10, 20 times as much as you do, guess which one, if you get into a disagreement with them, guess which one's going to drag you into court? Not this guy. It's the person that's got a lot. And can I just testify this morning? If you've ever been sued for anything, it is... There are, I, I don't know if Dante's right here with levels of hell, but, but getting sued is one of those levels. It, I've never, ever, I've been sued twice. I've never, ever talked to someone who's been sued that walked out of that, that experience and said, best time I've ever had. Do it, let's do it again. Like, who wants to sue me now? It's horrific. And those of us who have been sued, and, and I just want to put a sidebar in here, 
Both times I was innocent, so I just want to make that clear. <laughs> Lest you be thinking, what was he sued for? It was a real estate thing, and my realtor screwed things up, and we got pulled in. Okay, and so I can, you know, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of money, and my lawyer called me and said, listen, they're willing to settle for 40,000, which my response was, might as well be 40 million, because I don't have 40,000. I mean, it was one, and, and so my wife and I, you, you, you lose sleep over that stuff, right? You just, it eats you up. And James says, that's what the, the wealthy, not the wealthy will do it, but they can do it. In fact, the person that sued us, come to find out, he had a reputation for doing that. Why? He had money. It didn't cost him much. He let his lawyers go sick people to squeeze him out of some money. Guys, disenfranchised, homeless, they can't do that. And James just makes that point, that your, your, our thinking needs to be rearranged. Watch this, though, in verse 7. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. And I just want to encourage you that the royal law applies here. When God says, when Jesus says in Matthew 7, love your neighbor as yourself, the, two, the second of the two greatest commandments, he's talking about everyone. Am I doing that? Am I loving my neighbor, whomever my neighbor may be, the way I would want to be loved? I want to take you to one passage um, really quickly. Go over to Luke chapter 10. Because to, to help us identify how to do that, I think God, through Jesus, gives us a great example. Luke chapter 10. And I'm not going to read the whole passage. I just want to apply some principles out of the Good Samaritan. Most of you are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And to summarize, man goes on a journey, gets robbed, is left beaten and bloodied up. Three people walk by. Two of them... Um, should have helped him, a priest and a Levite, and the third one, a Samaritan, and the Samaritan and Jews were in great conflict with one another, uh, ethnically hated each other, did not like each other. Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds, as dogs, worse than, you know, Jews would help anyone other than a Samaritan. That's kind of the setup here. Jew is laying on the side of the road, beaten and bloodied, near death. Two Jews walk by, and they have better things to do with their time a Samaritan walks by, and let's pick it up in verse 33. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, listen to this, he felt compassion. If you're going to do this well, if you're going to do a second service well, can I just encourage you this morning? That's got to be a part of this. That when you see people from different walks of life come through these church doors, you need to feel compassion if you should feel compassion. I don't see in here, which I find interesting, gang, but a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he began to assess the situation and size up why this was happening. I don't see that. I don't see him walking by this person that's bloodied and bruised and start to make assessments as to why that's happening. And I think too often in my life, when I see someone that's disenfranchised, that's my opinion. Why are you like that? Why are you in that situation? I just see him feeling compassion. And because of that compassion, look at verse 34. He came to him and bandaged up his wounds, 
pouring oil and wine on them, and he put, his own, he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, we've, most, a lot of us have read that story a lot, and we just kind of blow over that. I just need to pause right here, and let's just kind of understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying there's a man here whom you don't know. He's a stranger. He's naked. He's beaten and bloodied near death. You approach him, and you feel compassion. Great, Greg. I feel compassion. Check that off. But that's, that compassion led him to action. So what is the action? And here's where ministering to people who aren't like me gets messy. Because he reached down and got involved. It's one thing, guys, to see someone in need and to throw a couple of bucks their way and to walk away. And the Samaritan could have done that. He, he had a couple of bucks. He had a couple of silver coins. He could have just tossed them right there and said, I, you know, this, I wasn't planning on this. This, you know, I got to go. And, and, and honestly, I think he would have felt good. Hey, I helped out. Maybe he would have went home and told the family. Yeah, so I was going down, you know. This guy was all beat up. Wow, dad, what'd you do? Throw him a couple bucks. Man, dad, you're like dad of the year. Like, that's so cool that, you, yeah, you know, I, you know. That's, that's not what he did. Guys, he, he, he got down, and he got dirty. He picked him up. He, he didn't say to the man, man, you're in a tough spot here. So I've got this donkey over here. I'll even, I'll hook you up with an inn. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll get you some comfort, some medical attention. But here's the deal. These are new. <laughs> like, I'm not bloodying these clothes up. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to get up and get on the donkey. You can do it. In fact, can I just do this? I'm going to stand over here and pray for you. Father, give him the, the ability to get up right now. I know he's got a broken femur, but give him the ability. Heal his body, God. True confessions, guys. I, I've, I've prayed for a lot of disenfranchised people without ever helping them. And I just wonder how many times I should have stopped praying and started acting. He gets on his knees and he grabs this guy. And he, he picks him up. Now he's in. Now you're in, right? Whatever you had going on that day, cancel it. And he puts him on his beast and he goes over to an inn, and then in verse 30, 30, uh, 35, and on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. It, is that possible as, 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 as you launch into a new season here at Church on Mill? I wonder if that's possible. That, that when I begin new ministries, when I sign up to serve out here, when I'm serving coffee or greeting or working with the kids or up here leading music, and I see someone, and can I just promote, you have undeniably the best um, greet one another time I've ever been to at a church. It, it goes on forever. <laughs> and, and I love it. Because there's that a minute of awkward and you keep going. Like you press the issue, keep going. 
Okay, keep going. And I love that because after a while then, it seems like after four weeks, that's kind of commonplace here. Which means this, for a second service, there's going to be people you don't know, tons of people you don't know. These walls will come down, this place will be filled when students come back. You won't know them. And, and I believe, guys, what James and, and what Luke is saying is if all you do is keep it up here with the surfacey stuff, you're not fulfilling this. Good stuff. Welcome. We're a friendly place. But that's not, that's not this. This is what are you doing for lunch? This is, hey, we're from Church on Mill. You visited our church. How are you doing? This is, here are my problems, what are yours? That's what this is. Now you say back to me, okay, well, love my neighbor as myself. Um, if, if it's true and we're gonna blow this place up numerically, how do you expect me to do that? I'm one person and you're right. So do this, do it with one person. Uh, listen, I'm not a mathematician, but I know that a lot will get accomplished if you pick one person and do this with one person. Um, I, on my way to work, again, I've been at Valley Christian for eight years or so. On my way to work, I drive by the same route, right? We all do that. You drive the same route. And it dawned on me, I was driving about five years ago, and I saw this guy sitting on a duffel bag um, reading. He just reads. He doesn't have signs up or anything. He just reads all the time. And I drive by him every day. And so one day, I'm probably in this passage or something like this, felt convicted, and so I just stopped. And it was weird because the intersection, you had to park across, you know, it was like, it, was, it, it wasn't easy. I got out and I made my way over and we began this conversation of like, hey, my name's Greg. And he looked up at me and he's like, okay. And I'm like, you know, and this is the great thing about the Christian life. When you promote God, you don't have a rule book here. You don't have a guidebook. It's like, what do I do now, God? And guys, that's where trusting God comes into play. If you're ever going to trust God, it's when you deal with people and work with people and minister to people that you're not comfortable with. Because the whole time as I'm walking up to this person, I'm saying to God, you have to lead this conversation. I have, no, I have nothing. I don't know what, he, you know, I don't know. I don't know who he is. And, and it was the first 15 minutes was awkward. It was like, I don't know, what do you want to say? And he wasn't very talkative. And so I'm just standing there, you know, standing over him, which I felt bad about. So you know what I did? I just parked it right down the side of the street. I just in my work clothes. I'm just down like this. Now, now we're eye level. Now he's looking at me like, okay, where's this going? And I said, my name's Greg. Is there anything I can do for you? Anything, any help I can give you? You know what he said? No. <laughs> so I, that was easy. Check did my job, God. Reached out, didn't need any help, I'm good. And then I started driving past him every day after that and seeing him. And I thought, that's not good enough. No, that's not good enough. He's, he's not out here for a reason. I want to see if I can help. So I stopped again. And then I found out his name is John. And guys, he's a real person. And we got to talking. And because of that, this was in the fall of 2013, um, we started meeting about once a week. Once a week, I'd stop by, get him some food, get him whatever he needed, and we just started this, you know. Well, guess what happens in the fall? Holidays. So Thanksgiving rolled around, and I said, um, he knew it, you know, I knew it. So the week before Thanksgiving, we had this awkward pause like, 
hey, thanks for, you know, I bought him a meal or something. He's like, thanks for the meal. And then, you know, cricket, cricket, like, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Well, I knew the minute I asked him that, his response was pretty much going to be, I'll be right here during Thanksgiving. I knew that, right? So I said, well, my brother's having Thanksgiving at his house in Chandler. Do you, would you like to come? And guys, can I? He said, I haven't been to a Thanksgiving meal in over 20 years. So yeah, I'd like to come. Well, guys, here's where it just gets messy. And I don't know how else to explain this other than the Good Samaritan. You've got to get involved. John looked like he had been on the streets for a very long time. And I'm about to bring him into a house where no one else looks like that. And guess what I found out about John? He's a prideful man. He didn't want to go like that. So we put him up in a hotel for a couple days, took a shower. And I want to say that shower alone took 20 years off his life. He came out. I just loved it. So I took him to my brother's, but the day before, I had to call my brother and say, listen, I'm bringing someone to Thanksgiving dinner with the whole family. He's got kids. I've got kids. My grandparents are going to be there. And my brother's like, who? And I said, my friend John. He's like, well, who's John? I said, he's this homeless guy I met like a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> alert, alert, danger. Like, you know, it was just like, my brother said, I don't think so. And I said, well, he's coming. So... And, and I just want to say, um, it went beautifully. Nothing. It went beautifully. We had a beautiful time. Family got to know him. My mom got to know him. We just had a great time. Everyone got to know John. Built relationships. Dropped him back off. Well, guess what happens in about three or four more weeks? Christmas. There's no way I'm letting him sit on the side of the street during Christmas. So we put him up in a hotel. And Christmas, the 23rd, 24th, or whatever, he, John came over to my house. We bought him a ton of gifts. And guys, I, I got to tell you, um, that was weird. Because guess what he didn't buy? A ton of gifts. And I just want to let you know that when you think like we're, you know, we went overboard. I got my family involved. I mean, like he had a, like a small little pile of gifts. He showed up and saw those. And, and again, he said, I haven't gotten a gift in over like 30 years. I, I don't even know what to do right now. So we said, well, open them. Yeah, we had the camera. Open them, you know, where I got all the kids around. And he pulls me aside. He pulls me aside and he said, um, can we not do this? Which, can I be honest with you? I was a little mad. No, you're going to do that. Like, you're going to open these gifts. <laughs> and he said, can we not do this? I feel horrible. I don't have a gift for you guys. And I said, absolutely. So we went back to the hotel room and I dropped him off. And I said, John, listen. Just for my sake, can you open a couple of them? And so he did, reluctantly, but did. And this huge smile, like this huge smile across his face. Well, guys, I, you know, long story short, three days after Christmas on, in December of 2013, Jen and I were getting married. Well, again, how do you talk about, you know, a wedding that you're going to have fun, you know, and all this stuff without? So I said to John right around Christmas, hey, what are you doing on the 28th? And he said nothing. <laughs> And I said, would you like to come to, to my wedding? And guys, he, he broke down. He, he was so honored. So John came to our wedding. Here's what was funny. Um, when we got to, you know, you've all done this. We get together for family pictures. I think I have one up here. Um, John is in, the, I think there's a picture. Yeah. So John's over there on the right. It was funny because the, the photographer said, 
Tonkinson family, like all you get, you know, you, know, you got different, different groups getting together with pictures. So the Tonkinson family, so we all got together, and John just walked into the picture. <laughs> he just walked in. And Jen and I looked over like, okay, here we go. And so that's, and the next, I think I got a couple pictures. That, like, and guys, I'm just saying, Isaiah 58 is this. That's my home. That's us having dinner. And that's John having dinner with us. And the next picture is Thanksgiving. That's John outside having dinner, uh, Thanksgiving with us. The next picture is at the hotel with him opening his Christmas gifts. And then here's what's, here's what's funny about John. Every six months, he spends the fall in Arizona, and then he goes to D.C. and spends the summer in D.C. from April to October. And I was like, why do you do that? He said, because I got a place in a place, like meaning under a bridge in D.C., and I got a place out here in Arizona. So the next slide, that's, uh, I, so every, every April or so, I'll drive him down to Greyhound and pick up a ticket for him, and he goes off to D.C. And, and here's, the, here's kind of the cool yet, you know, again, me trusting God and, and my family trusting God. I don't have, a, he doesn't have a phone. So that means every October, I start driving around where he usually stays, and I see if I can find him, because I don't know if he'll ever make it back. He's 67 years old. He's been on the streets for over 40 years. And I, I don't know if he'll ever make it back. All I'm simply saying is this, gang. At some point, I started reading James chapter 2, Luke chapter 10, literally. I stopped reading them figuratively. I stopped thinking somebody else will do it. Greg, you've got to do something. And here's, can I just be honest with you? The amount of hours and money just to minister to one person has taxed my family. My mom has helped out. We, we've all helped out. It's not fun at times. There were, there were some times, guy, I'd bring John a dinner, and he'd look at it and say, no thanks. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, I don't like ketchup or whatever. You got ketchup on this. <laughs> oh, you got to, oh, like, you're going to eat that. You know, it was like this feeling like, you're, that, that, no, 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 no. Beautiful relationship. Um, John's a part of our family. Uh, my kids love him. A and it would pain me to no end if he didn't show up this October. Because I have no way of tracking him down or figure out what, what would happen. One person. So, so here's the deal. When I drive off the freeway and I see someone else in need, I don't feel as bad if I don't help them. Because I... I because God and I have this kind of thing where God says to me, you can only help so many. And you're helping someone, so if you can help this person, great, but if you can't, you know. Maybe that could be when people come through these doors, when you see people in your neighborhoods, when you see family and friends that are in need, maybe that could be the approach. I can't do everything, God, but if I'm going to promote you, I can do this. My question is, is what is your this? Let me just finish with um, James chapter 2. James says in, in verse 9, But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder. Now, if you, do, if you don't commit adultery... Verse 11, but do commit murder. Have you not become a transgressor of the law? So watch this. This is the application in verses 12 and 13. 
How, how do I do this well, God? God says this, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to, to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I guess my final point would just simply be this. I want to look at people in the church as people that God wants there. So if someone is willing in the next four weeks when you guys open up your second service and you put forth the effort to serve in some capacity and someone's willing to grace your campus, that my attitude would be, God, you want this person here. Yeah, but they don't act like, they don't look like, they don't, it's okay. You want them here. And because of that, God, I'm praying you would allow a connection to take place with me, that you would allow me to make a connection with that person. And God, if not me, would you let them make a connection with somebody here so that at some point they're in one of your homes getting to know you. And through that, I think mercy will triumph. I saw this quote, and I just want to leave you with this as we wrap up our time. If you were tried in a court of law for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that this body of believers here, from my vantage point, is doing well. Healthy church. Healthy group that knows who you are. They know why they're here, very missional. And so, God, as they embark on uh, this opening a second service, what an exciting time to be a part of things. And I know that challenges come because of that. I wouldn't expect it to be easy. But God, my prayer for this body of believers is that when people show up, and they will, from all walks of life, that impartiality would reign. That we would not be a partial group looking for a certain kind of person, but that we would be a very merciful group, recognizing that everyone who comes on this campus will be a person in need, whether that's the need of the gospel, the need of finances, the need of relationship, the need of emotion, emotional help. And so, God, may you bless the people of Church on Mill to, a, to be equipped to handle those needs. Because one day, Father, you, your son will return. And there will be no more need for us to do that with each other. We will simply spend time in heaven encouraging one another, worshiping one another, because our needs will have been met by you. Until that, there's work to be done. May we be faithful to do that to the very end in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for having me once again.